0: Behold, the sword of power, Excalibur.
1: To Lucky, episode thirteen of the Ogasho oh oh Galio oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for one hundred and twenty-six plus weeks. This week, we are looking at Excalibur number thirteen, the Marriage of True Minds, originally published in October nineteen eighty-nine. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on penciling, Paul Neary on inks, Glennis Oliver on colors, Tom Orzechowski on lettering, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Oh.
0: Fang of the dragon! The sword, the land! Yes, Merlin, that's it.
2: Set the world to rights. Call the dragon. Mend the sword. Speak the charm of making.
1: This is the continuation of last week's story arc involving the start of the cross-time caper and Kitty Pride becoming the object of affection of a young prince named William, who proposed to her at the end of the last issue. How will she respond? Stay tuned to find out. We've got such an exciting guest to help us hash out all the interesting gender and identity questions the story raises, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, our usual brief intros to the usual team. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write about comics and pop culture and issues of representation for lots of your favourite academic journals and comic book websites. I'm the co-host of another podcast with a co-host of this podcast called Three Panel Contrast. And every day, in every way, I'm always on duty as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Take it away.
2: Hello, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. And I am excited because this semester is over. <laughs> I am an adjunct instructor at Mount Aloysius College and Duquesne University, both of which are in Pennsylvania, um, where my, where I teach English and writing, and I focus on culture, literary cultural studies, and communications, and things like sexuality and gender and race representations. And I've been going crazy grading papers. That's over now i get to spend the rest of my summer reading comic books and doing my own research and talking about stuff like the cross time caper which is in full effect this issue we've got you know we've got finishing up the storyline from last time where we're seeing lots of craziness with sexuality and gender and then you know just more cross time capery Goodness. Uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion today.
1: And Andrew, if you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself once again.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and a co-host of Three Panel Contrast, another podcast. Uh, And I am the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a big Chris Claremont-oriented project with a strong social media wing to it. Uh, And I'm very excited today because our guest is someone whose work we've actually featured on the Claremont Run. So this will be either awesome or awkward, depending on how things go. <laughs>
3: oh, Andrew, no! It's
1: going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. Let me let me introduce her, and we'll we'll get to it. As I mentioned, we have another stupendous guest with us today in Dr. Margaret Galvan. Welcome, Margaret. Thanks so much for having me. Margaret is an assistant professor of visual rhetoric in the Department of English at the University of Florida. Her research examines how visual culture operates within feminist and queer social movements. Related to this, she's currently finishing a book titled Invisible Archives of the 1980s with University of Minnesota Press, which examines how publishing practices and archives have shaped understandings of the visual within feminist and queer activism. In 2021-22, she will be an external faculty fellow at the Stanford Humanities Center, researching her second book about how communities of LGBTQ cartoonists innovated comics through materially engaging various grassroots formats. This all sounds so amazing. She is also the co-editor of a book about the 90s X-Men animated series which should be coming out in 2022. We will certainly alert our listeners to that as updates emerge. I've known Margaret for a few years now in and around comic studies circles, though I'd forgotten that you had a specific interest in Kitty Pride until Andrew did a Claremont run thread spotlighting your book chapter on Kitty from Joe Dorowski's book The Ages of the X-Men, which we will link in our show notes, and we're going to talk about as well. Anyway, I wanted to find you a good Kitty issue to speak to, and hopefully this fills the bill. But before we get into our discussion, I would love, Margaret, for you to tell us a little bit more about your X-Men fandom, when you kind of started reading X-Men comics and what you made of them. Basically, if you can give our readers a sense of your X-Men origin story, as it were.
3: Yeah, so I actually started watching before I started reading, because the X-Men animated series was, you know, very popular in the 90s and got me hooked in immediately when it first aired in 92 and I think I started reading the first comic I picked up was in 93 and I got that from my local grocery store and you know really got into the characters from there. Um, there was also a local comic book shop where I would pick up issues other issues of X-Men and that's where that and the sort of failed X-Men pilot from the 80s is where I found out about Kitty Pride. Pride of the X-Men where Kitty and Kurt hug at the end and it's adorable. Yeah exactly and I really loved Kitty Pride. From the very start, I think there was something for me as a point of view character that I really related to her a bit more than Jubilee. Uh, you know, both characters are sort of spunky and annoying, but there was something about the way Kitty was written um, that was just more more exciting for me. Not no no offense to any Jubilee fans. No, on the no, we <laughs>
1: don't want to we don't want to do the Jubilee slander on this podcast. But I mean, that's fair. They're very different characters. I mean, Kitty is sort of you know from that sort of computer tech nerd background, and that's not
3: really Jubilee's background necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was that they were trying to be like Jubilee is a kid of the '90s and as yeah. like a child in the '90s. I was like I take offense at this representation okay yeah Yeah, but so it was, uh, you know, Kitty's always been sort of from the get-go someone, a character I have really uh, appreciated and enjoyed.
1: So this is your first time encountering Excalibur, though, am I correct?
3: Yes, definitely. I uh, I really enjoyed reading this, and you had me also read issue 12, so I got the whole sort of sense of the arc.
1: Like, in terms of discovering some of the older comics, like, when did you kind of decide that you wanted to, to write about those? Had you read those kind of growing up, or was that something you kind of revisited later?
3: Um, I read some various issues. Issues. I think in the '90s they were doing like X-Men classics, and they do like reprints of some of the issues. So I was definitely aware of it. But then I thought, you know, there was this um, *Agents of the X-Men* book, and I thought something about Kitty would be great. Um, I had really appreciated Ramsey Fawass' take on um, Jean Grey and Storm in the '70s, and so I was like, well, what about, you know, what happens after that? And so that his uh, article was, you know, huge inspiration to the piece that I did um, on Kitty Pride and so. So then I was like, well, now I need to go back and read all of this, some of it for the first time. Because, you know, and they would do the reprints as just all sort of the classic stuff.
1: So we will come back to some first impressions in a moment. But let's start as we usually do with our issue summary so that we're all on the same page. Excalibur number 13, The Marriage of True Minds, sees the team trapped in a medieval fantasy, magical, modern, mix-em-up version of London in the royal castle of the ruling queen, where Brian Braddock, aka Captain Britain, is showing off a brand new, very white costume. Kitty and Kurt tease him in adorable fashion, and we get some exposition about how brian and megan's powers are tied to the native magic of britain which explains why they got weaker or in megan's case more chaotic when the team traveled to new york they're interrupted by the entrance of the queen mother accompanied by the princess diana-esque queen consort the queen strongly resembles an older and in brian's words kinder version of the omniversal majestic saturnine who in turn resembles courtney ross there are as we know a lot of doppelgangers in excalibur the queen discusses prince william's marriage with kitty kitty promises to let william down easy but the queen informs her this is not an option a proposal from the prince Cannot be refused. The argument escalates until the Queen suddenly teleports herself and Kitty elsewhere. The enraged members of Excalibur race into the castle demanding Kitty's return, but are met with a palace guard, a cadre of enormous ogres dressed in the top half of London police uniforms. Meanwhile, back in the 616, and specifically a derelict pier on Brighton Beach, the TechNet have finalized a deal with the local town council to make the pier their temporary home in exchange for improving Brighton's weather. That done, TechNet interrogates Nigel Frobisher, who is still thoroughly, literally, bent out of shape from his encounter with the TechNet in the last issue. As the TechNet watches, Nigel shifts from a gooey pile into an approximation of Courtney Ross and then into his usual male form. Finally, Nigel is able to communicate a job offer. His boss, Courtney Ross, who, as you'll recall, is really the evil Saturn 9, wants to contract the TechNet to free Jamie Braddock, Brian Braddock's brother, who is currently being held captive somewhere in Africa, it doesn't specify, by Dr. Crocodile. This will become important in a later issue. Jumping dimensions once again, back to the royal castle, Kitty is trapped in yet another stasis tube. The queen declares Kitty's independent spirit must be tamed before she's an appropriate match for Prince William. William. And so, they reshape Kitty, cosmetically and physically, with a series of magic spells. Kitty cries for help and Rachel answers, forcefully along with the other members of Excalibur. But when they finally reach Kitty, the spell's been cast. She stands before them as an older, more princessy version of herself and declares she wants to marry the prince. Rachel is distraught but can't find anything amiss with Kitty's mind. She's serious about marrying William. William, though, is less sure. He preferred the previous version of Kitty. The story meanders a bit from there. Ogres repair Excalibur's train and Kitty is attacked multiple times by the same black tentacle monster we saw in the last issue. When she's attacked, Kitty reverts to her regular form and personality. Eventually, Kurt and Megan discover Kitty's doppelganger, Catherine, is a sorceress who's trying to destroy Kitty because she is in love with William. Catherine avoids a death sentence when William decides he wants to marry her after all. The Queen agrees, though we're told in a thought bubble that she would have been perfectly content to make Kitty stay if William hadn't changed his mind. So, this issue has a lot to love. There's some really great character work, as usual, some great fantasy and humor, and a completely horrifying mind and body manipulation that is really not particularly played is horrific I have feelings about that but let's start with some first impressions from everybody else starting guest privilege with you Margaret reading Excalibur and being a fan of Kitty from Uncanny X-Men I'm curious about how you feel the character has kind of evolved in this series or if you feel that she's evolved does this seem like the same version of Kitty that you were familiar with or does she seem different at all
3: um she's definitely more confident and you know she has respect of her teammates um but she's still played as like punky youthful in that sort Way she has sort of this you know standout personality but we sort of see it um, as a benefit rather than like something that's a detraction and so you know that's sort of it's sort of very much the same kitty but with having gained the respect and sort of being sort of a central team member is sort of how i was reading her
1: yeah so do you think does the characters feel like older then? like does it feel like she's grown up a little bit or is it just sort of like the way that the story is
3: focusing on her do you think it does feel like she's grown up a little bit so i would be curious to know like you know what age we're sort of supposed to be sort of perceiving her hair as if that's yeah. sort of clarified or not but you know she's still they're still laying her off as sort of this youthful like it's as if it's part of her character as well like no matter that she's still older and has grown as a team member that's it's, it's sort of just sort of stuck to her as a character trait like in a weird yeah. way
1: yeah I think we've talked about before that you know the series sort of wants to have things both ways with Kitty because we've talked about why it actually seems to de-age her like going from um, Uncanny X-Men to Excalibur Because there's no way that she could be The series wants us to canonically think that she's 14 But that can't possibly line right. up age-wise She's like I 13 should, and um, a when she joins the X-Men
2: Yeah, I should give uh, We should post, I did a timeline yeah. Just for our, for our notes, not really For anything else, of Kitty's age Via birthdays, she was aging Very specifically with specific mm-hmm. b- Birthdays when in X-Men So she should be 15 But spoilers moving forward She's going to be celebrating her 15th birthday some time from now so she's either 14 or 15 i'm not sure they knew for sure
3: (laughs) yeah yeah other first impressions let's see i I mean i think the interesting thing is it's always so much about her identity and sort of her conception of herself and so i was paying attention to you know how she's sort of speaking about herself and uh, i like that they made her taller when they aged her that was something i didn't pick up until i had to relook at it i was like oh so it's you know it's height is a thing here um and sort of like height and thinking about stature and thinking about respect um and how people perceive people who are you know taller when they can sort of see them eye to eye there's a great panel i'm sure that you noticed anna where she's looking sort of eye to eye at kurt um in the sort of more princess form um but yeah. then her hair is still wonky as a princess so there's still <laughs> like this inescapable spunkiness of her character um that can't be like tamed into this princess form
1: yeah i love when kitty has her curly hair in general in comics i feel- feel like that's how i think about the character other other first impressions from you andrew um
0: one thing i would maybe talk about is my my weekly megan rant um (laughs) the title is the marriage of true minds uh which is a a shakespeare thing it it basically suggests that that if you love someone you shouldn't try to change them and you shouldn't change for them and obviously that that speaks to the theme here but when the title page is revealed it's brian brian who is in a relationship with an empathic metamorph who is changing to please him and and as someone who is you know obsessively rereading the toxicity of that relationship on my my read through here I find that really interesting and I don't think it's intentional um but it just makes me angrier at <laughs> Brian's consistent treatment of Megan
1: oh yeah now I'm wondering whether it's intentional I would be hesitant to read it as intentional as well but yeah it is definitely an interesting reference uh Mav any first impressions
2: uh similar I so first impression from you know 30 years ago I love this I as I said I I'm you know one once the cross time caper starts, I was just completely on board. I loved everything about that. Rereading it through now, um, I have similar questions to what Andrew just did. I I was aware at the time of the, I, I noticed immediately the kitty gets taller when the spell's in effect and she goes back to being shorter and it goes back and forth. So um, I had feelings on that, which were, were weird at the time, but even weirder now because now in comics. She has aged, and Kitty's just short. She's about the yeah. same height now that she <laughs> that she was when she was fourteen. She wasn't. Well, I mean, she's not short. She's <laughs> she's regular woman height. She's like five three, you know, <laughs> you know, or, or or something. So it's not. It, it is odd for her suddenly to be Kurt height, but you know, magic, magic does stuff. My other first impression, which was then as well as now, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, is you know the very much the the mind control thing that's going on, which, which for me was interesting because even teenager. Mav, who was not quite yet, you know, very successful, you know, scholarly scholarly Mav, who thinks <laughs> deeply about these things. I was very aware that he was, uh, that Claremont, as a writer, was sort of playing with the idea of mind control and sexuality, and something he's aware of, because we are, for him, in his life, we are eight years removed from him trying to rehabilitate Carol Danvers from her mind control rape story that was unintentional. So I was very, you know, trying to figure out, again, as a 15-year-old, how much intentionality is going into the meta narrative of him trying to comment on this earlier thing that he and other writers did.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, my first impression, which is, you know, my rereading first impression is that the first time I read this, I definitely didn't think that much about how horrifying what is done to Kitty really is. And then definitely rereading, it was sort of all I could think about, which is why I referenced it in the in in the opening there because yeah, it is a nothing happens here. She doesn't end up marrying William, but I mean, she still has her Body and mind warped and changed, which is a thing. Uh, but I want to, yeah, I want to get into some of the implications of that for sure. Um, but let's start with I want to have Margaret talk a little bit more about sort of some of her research on Kitty and sort of the importance of this character in the history of comics and particularly the history of superhero comics. To do that, I would like to talk about what Margaret has called Kitty Pride's multivalent identity. So I'm borrowing that word multivalent from Margaret's chapter called From Kitty to Cat Kitty Pride and the Phases of Feminism. And as I I mentioned it's from the anthology the ages of the x-men we will have that linked in our show notes so in your chapter margaret you argue that kitty and this is a quote not only challenges physical structures by penetrating them with her body but breaks down barriers between and within identities that description really reminds me of two particularly memorable scenes from excalibur that we talked about already kitty fighting her way out of the world in excalibur number two and her stepping all the way inside rachel's body in excalibur number five and we talked about the queer coding of that when we talked about that issue um, but anyway so your book chapter describes kitty as a multivalent character who resonates with intersectional feminism and in particular with Gloria Anzaldua's theory of borderlands and Donna Haraway's cyborg manifesto. But that is a lot of academic ease for people who are not (laughs) as familiar with some of these concepts and theorists as, as we might be. So would you be able to walk our listeners through like some of your central arguments from that book chapter? You already spoke a little bit about what draws you to Kitty, but what were your reasons for wanting to talk about Kitty in this way, like through these phases of feminism that you reference in your chapter?
3: When it comes to Kitty Right. Like when she's introduced, she's, you know, this younger character she's and she's, you know, this analog for the readers, but she's also, you know, coming of age at a time where she's sort of could benefit from the second wave of feminism, right? Like she's not on the front lines um, in the the 70s and the late 60s. She's sort of a child of, of that era. Right. And so I was sort of thinking about like, well, what does that mean for her in the 80s? And also how is she perhaps in conversation with in different ways um of what sort of is what sort of conversations in feminism that are happening that are contemporaneous to her right so i choose gloria anzaldua and donna Haraway because they're writing and thinking in the 80s at the same time right um so what's in the water that people are thinking about um i also uh spend a bit of uh, my work thinking about her vis-a-vis john hughes and john hughes's uh films um in the 80s thinking about how she sort of echoes in some ways um Molly Ringwald, you know, the, she has that one sort of beautiful panel uh, splash page, you know, Professor X is a jerk um, and, you know, that sort of jerk is definitely a word that Molly Ringwald uses in Pretty and Pink, right, to, to correct her friend uh, Ducky when he's being a jerk and sort of being mean to her so I'm sort of thinking about her and I do this a lot in my work, thinking about different sorts of things that are all in cultural production at the same time, right and, you know, thinking about this because I know also Chris Claremont um, had a lot of attention to and wanted to uplift um, his female characters and it says something that he made his point of view character a young woman right and not only a young woman but you know a young woman who is also Jewish uh, and so you know there, there's a lot sort of going in there right it's sort of intersectional before we're using that word um, and so there's you know ways in which she sort of echoes sort of like all of the John Hughes films but she also as I say in that piece she can't really get any of those privileges right because she's sort of stripped from her teen life right and that's sort of her struggle struggle is sort of, um, and we see it here, uh, In Excalibur in this issue of Excalibur 2, the struggle for identity and sort of trying to sort of figure out who she is and and what she's meant to be. And so, you know, we're talking about this body horror moment, but this isn't the first time it's happened. So in my article, I also talk about days of future past, where she's inhabited by the future version of herself, right? From this alternate timeline, Kate Pride, who, you know, say what you will about Kitty Pride, but she's one of the only X-Men that survives in this dystopian future. But I also look a lot at Kitty Pride and Wolverine, which is a mini series, and in there she's you know mind controlled by a warlord, and Wolverine has to help her sort of break that mind control. It's interesting; both these moments have Wolverine sort of in the scene. So this isn't the first time this has happened to her, and it's always a moment where she's you know Days of Future Past. It's not such a bad a bad thing, right? It's her future self, but it's a moment of sort of redefinition or thinking about who who she is, right? So that's sort of uh, parts of um, what I'm thinking about in this piece, but also in connecting it to um, what we're here to talk about today. So I hope that's helpful.
1: <laughs> no, it's very helpful. I mean, can you speak a little bit more how it relates to her powers, like of phasing and intangibility? Like, is that part of her multivalence for you as as you see it?
3: Yeah, because I see her as being able to use her, use her powers to build coalition, right? And to connect with people, um, bringing them from one place to the other. And so there's a way in which also, you know, there's her power is not, so, is not so powerful that she can do it all herself. She really needs to work with other people. Yeah. Um, and part of the story of uh, feminism in the 1980s is about trying to build coalition. Across difference, right? And so we see her also. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in my piece is how she really connects with Storm and um, engages with Storm um, in a way that's sort of more horizontal than we see um, with Jean Grey and Kitty Pride. And Jean Grey, as you know, when Kitty Pride is introduced, has died as the Phoenix. And so in some ways, Kitty Pride is like a replacement character, although not quite. But so, you know, the way that she's interacting with characters differently, and she has to, because of her powers, um, sort of be a go between and work with and you know it's, it's all sorts of things we've done
1: a lot of kind of like talking about kitty's various sort of multiple and hybrid identities in previous episodes you know sort of her ability to be flexible and sort of fill these different roles and different stories particularly when we looked at the inferno story where she was trapped in the movie and sort of taking on all these different roles and how that was both like a power and a threat to her in various ways but like yeah i love the idea of like her body being part of that story of multivalence andrew i'm sure you have thoughts on this as well being somebody who's talked about kitty many times how do you see kind of some of these themes of multivalence playing out in this particular story
0: well i think one of the more interesting um places we could go with it is just to think about how kitty's relationship with her powers have changed. Excalibur yeah. uh, and how that manifests in terms of like um, her character arc so the idea that she is vulnerable the idea that her power is out of control um, the idea that I mean as Margaret was saying that there's a greater dependency upon others in this era I, I think all of those lend themselves into kind of a, a broader theme of maturation and the sort of chaos uh, and instability that goes along with that
1: and like an added component of multivalence and intersectionality that she's basically well exactly struggling with disability right now right
0: mm-hmm. yeah for sure
1: Mav, thoughts on any of this?
2: N- nothing quite that smart. Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, Margaret's I, a good
2: I, one. <laughs> yeah, I I agree, is, is basically all I could say. I've, I, I've said she is my favorite X-Men at the time. It's what got me into the series because I was exactly that age, right? Like, of course I'm going to follow her. She's the character that exists in this universe just for me to follow. But that said, I was, I, okay, at this point I'm 15. So I'm a 15-year-old year old black boy, not a 15 year old Jewish girl. So I think that multiple, you know, that ability to inhabit the identity for her still to be a point of view character, not for me trying not like, you know, I'm 15, I'm a high school student, I'm not trying to, you know, let me put on my scholarly reading cap and embody this character. (laughs) I'm not doing that. I'm just sort of enjoying it because naturally, I feel at that time, like she is there for me to be the entry into the world and notions of identity, how she can't be never occurred to me so i think that speaks to the power of how well she resonates as that kind of character and in this particular story that's made incarnate because she's literally from panel to panel flipping back and forth between yeah. her older and her younger self so like the the multiple identity is literal in that respect and i there's an interesting line where where rachel literally says oh, "Not i read her mind it's her it's not her but it's her so it's it's expressing the very nature of yes one character can embody multiple parts of identity in a way in which we've, you know, spent the last 13 episodes talking about Kitty doing this all the time.
1: Yeah, I particularly love, I just have the picture, I have the page open where she appears to them in princess form for the first time and the character's different reactions to her transformation. We have one of those wonderful sort of panels where Davis really does a great job with facial expressions and Rachel is just distraught, Kurt is angry, Brian is sort of like, ooh, and Megan is just like, she looks beautiful. It's just like a wonderful little bit of character work, that one panel.
2: Yeah, Brian's being as creepy as ever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Right on brand, Brian. (laughs) But let's talk about that physical transformation and some of, like, I'm calling it body horror, which isn't really the right term. I think the reason I'm using that term is just because I could imagine another story in which this was played as body horror and it's really not here, which I find an interesting choice. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of kind of the wild transformations of the Silver Age of Comics, particularly in DC Comics, where you would see characters take on these radically different forms you know you would see like Lois Lane and Lana Lang like transform into Kryptonian insects to save the world and be very not traumatized (laughs) by that experience you know they would just do that and then revert to their human forms and just be like okay back to work tomorrow right and this reminds me a little bit of that's been criticized as lacking psychological depth and that's a fair criticism right one of the innovations of the Marvel comics was to have physical transformations that had psychological depth you saw characters reckoning with what it actually means to be physical transformed in the cases of The Thing or The Hulk, which we talked about before on the podcast or Nightcrawler a little bit later. Well, Nightcrawler is actually not a good example because he doesn't physically transform, but anyway, monster characters from that earlier era for sure. But again, here, this feels a little bit almost like a throwback in terms of the character undergoing this physical transformation and sort of not having a psychological reaction, at least that we see on the page. And again, I would suggest that there's sort of like a freedom and a danger to that, you know, like allowing this character kind of to experience transformation and not be traumatized is a thing, but also not showing her emotional reaction is also a thing. So I was curious about your thoughts about that. And we'll start with you, Margaret. What did you feel about this approach to the transformation narrative?
3: Well, I think it's interesting because I think Kitty Pride is always sort of character in flux right like as a as a teen right teens are known for trying on so many different identities you know you have your goth phase you know all the all these sort of interesting <laughs> phase. though i say the word phase and you know her power is phasing through things yeah but there is a moment you know when she's because whenever in this issue whenever she's fighting she sort of reverts back to kitty pride right and has an awareness that this change is happening and at the one of the last times and one of the people i think in the castle is trying to sort of change her back and she says maybe Sh- Shadow Cat is the person I'm meant to be, not Princess Kitty. And so it's this idea that's meant to be, right? It's not really set in stone yet. W- what she to be? She's still in process, right? She's still figuring herself out, right? Because she's still, as, as we established earlier in this episode, she's still very much a teenager in the middle of her teen years, right? So she's not so you know, set in stone who she is. Yeah, and we sometimes, younger characters
1: sometimes have a freedom in terms of transformation that older characters don't, and like that explains some of why it's presented perhaps as like less traumatizing than it would be for a different type of character but I mean I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense to Margaret that that's part of just her character as well she's a character that's used to being in flux so maybe that's part of it but what, what did you think Andrew or Mav about how this was handled?
2: I, so on uh, I guess four episodes ago for the listeners we the episode where we talked about, um, about the monster and the feminine right there is an awareness in this issue I mean it's sort of an awareness by omission but it's not as horrific as Nigel's transformation it's not as horrific as the thing's transformation because she transforms into something beautiful right it is the aspect of Megan that makes her a weird character you know Megan's natural form is to well we haven't seen her natural form yet in this book but we know that Megan's natural form as far as they're concerned is this furry reptilian werewolf creature kind of thing but she has transformed into something more appealing because that is who she is on the inside and it's sort of Okay, to transform in that you become a model esque you know, princess. So yay, you know, you can you can transform. It's not horrific, even though it's against your will, because now you are gorgeous and elegant. Um, and it shouldn't be that way. You know, th- the story is trying to be aware of her saying, "No, this is who I am. I am meant to be Shadowcat. I'm not meant to be Pr- Princess Kitty." This is her reckoning with her being her true self. It's undercut a little bit by the. Old Overall narrative because this is a point in Katie's life where, for the last year of comics and going forward, it's going to be probably another year going forward. She is going to be very obsessed with wanting to be Rachel. So there's a little bit of a, yeah, but she also does want to be this elegant woman and it, it just if, if they transferred her into an ogre like Shrek then she would not be as okay with this and so there's an awareness in the narrative of that and, and it's kind of it, it is kind of weird
1: I guess I just wish that we'd had some of even a thought bubble anything like her reacting to it because we're very cut off from her thoughts in this issue which is very strange and I mean that kind of makes sense in terms of having to preserve the mystery of like how yeah. much is her and how much isn't her so I sort of understand that choice but then one of the sort of <laughs> fun but sometimes problematic things about cross time capers is that we're just we barrel ahead on the next adventure so we don't get a lot of sort of reflection on this experience
2: no ramifications yeah yeah
3: yeah she, I mean, she what... does
2: have her thoughts and her thoughts are being overwritten and like you know rachel notes that she's in there but it's a different her like rachel says that and kurt sort of recognizes and this is the thing that i was talking about before and sort of my first impressions i can't read this given that it's claremont and given knowing how much of a problem he had we should explain he had with the Carol Danvers story in Avengers 200, where carol basically shows up at avengers mansion pregnant in like two days time has a baby it matures to full adulthood and then she says oh yeah i fell in love with him in another reality i'm marrying him bye and everybody's like yay have fun it's weird it's creepy on every level and i specifically skim-
1: we should add to like there's a line in it that with a subtle boost from his yep. machine she fell in love with him so it's, yeah it is explicitly against her will so they should have picked up on that they in his picked- description
2: <laughs> but well almost incidentally though right because i don't think it would. i think that story is intended to be romantic
0: it's awful
2: but it's intended to be romantic and claremont who as you know is writing excalibur here was appalled by it so a year later he just takes over and says i'm fixing this horrible thing that you've done and then in avengers annual number 10 first appearance of rogue if i recall correctly yep Um, but he brings ms marvel back she's captain marvel now same character carol danvers he brings her back and says she freaks out she's like what the hell is wrong with you people you're supposed to be my friend you saw me get raped you saw me go off with my abuser and everybody was just okay with it and they're like we didn't know and she said well you should have you know the, just the, the entire story everything about this is horrible I don't want to speak to you people ever again and she leaves and Carol Danvers sort of goes on to be with the X-Men as, as an X-Men character instead of an Avengers character for a while because Claremont was appalled at that story and then he works at rehabilitating her in some ways that people find questionable some ways that, that's, that's a side to the point he's aware of that issue and he's doing it here but the only way i can read it and which is kind of nice is they're not willing to just go along with it like they're kind of you know there's a lot of kurt going are you sure this is what you want are you really sure and she says yeah 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 but I don't, I don't think we're supposed to presume That they would have ever left her behind I think yeah. that we're supposed to see this As, a, as the X-Men are a family And I, yeah, I know they're ex Excalibur But they're the X-Men Particularly Kurt, Rachel, and and Kitty We're a family We're not leaving her behind with this creep Not that William's doing it on purpose It's his grandmother, but still
1: Yeah, I mean, putting my fiction y brain on I'm sort of like There's so much behind the scenes That I'm reading into this issue In terms of I see Kurt wanting to respect her decision Because that's how he treats Kitty But clearly being very troubled by it. I mean, he has a lot of strong facial expression reactions anyway, to what's going on throughout. So we know that he's not comfortable with this.
2: It's 22 pages. It's one issue, but there's, there's so much going on that I feel like resolves itself in one issue, but it really, I feel like a lot is going on that I don't think we're wrong for reading between the lines here.
1: Yeah. I I will say too, the other thing, the reaction that I really particularly liked was Rachel's reaction, because we almost get, we get the outrage that Kitty should be feeling, but isn't feeling because her mind's been overridden. We get that from Rachel, you know, she has a distraught reaction to this transformation in Kitty. And then she has the scene where she sort of turns away, sort of like sad and devastated, like she's just lost her friend, right? And it's really, really meaningful. I, I like really, really like that reaction from Rachel. Well,
3: it's a beautiful panel too, where that happens. And she calls out for Rachel and, and she, she, she feels her mental anguish, right? So she knows... You know, even though this result is, uh, you know, she's just so... She can feel it and probably, you know, it's in her bones, right? Um, She knows... That this is not right
1: Yeah and I think I said In a previous pod the Probably the one um, On Excalibur number five Where we have the scene Where Kitty steps Completely inside Rachel That they don't get A lot of sort of Those glances That certain other Queer coded characters get But this panel Where Rachel is sort of Reaching towards Kitty's face With kind of that Frightened and distraught expression Could qualify as one Of those glances I think um, Let's talk about The Nigel transformation And how it contrasts With Kitty's transformation Because maybe that's a way Of getting at it From a different angle Because there We definitely do have body horror and we definitely do have the characters sort of experiencing horror although I'm anticipating Andrew also speaking about some of the pleasure of that transformation in that scene because I know it's always kind of both but um, yeah what did we make of the Nigel scene like we talked a little bit about it in the last issue but we still get a little bit more of it here that's interesting seeing him in these between states and seeing him shift into the Courtney form the Saturnine form and then back into his own form I'll, I'll let you take a stab at that one Andrew because I'm curious about your thoughts do you think that there is horror and pleasure going on in this scene
0: uh, i do yeah i, I think see um, how
1: well i know you <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Yeah, I think there's that, again, that the fantasy of sort of um, erotic exhibitionism uh, in Nigel's existence. Um, For me, what makes it kind of really interesting is the way that Alan Davis illustrates it Mm because you get that like very cheesecake shot of the clothing torn just right. uh, And you see it in Nigel's female form and then you get like a really parallel panel, two panels later, of seeing that exact same thing framed in a physically appealing male form. Um, So yeah, I I think Claremont's definitely dipping his toe into um, lots of different forms of sort of erotic appeal. And Davis seems to be flanking him very well in that regard.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they're specifically are not wearing anything on their lower half. I mean, you can see that quite explicitly. There's no underwear. So, I mean, it's just sort of torn clothes on the top, which I find an interesting and deliberate choice. Mm -hmm, For sure. Did you have any thoughts about this Nigel scene, Margaret, as somebody who's
3: done some work of your own on embodiment? Yeah, I mean, it's, I reread both this issue, but also 12. So I sort of, you know, I mean, I haven't heard the podcast of what you what y'all talked about last week yet. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'll, I'll be not excited. A, yeah, not, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting too because when they're transforming him, he's sort of moving between genders. You know, it's not just from one gender to the other, it's like back and forth, and they're all sort of playing with him. And yet he's relatively the sort of like played for laughs British calm about him. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh and so I, I was just sort of paying attention to all of this too like it's horrific but it's also sort of tamped down but yeah so it's 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 a bizarre moment right and it's an interesting juxtaposition right in some ways that sort of points at perhaps the horror that's sort of more quiet in what's happening to Kitty
1: yeah and I mean the way that we see his body you know like really literally bent out of shape is so different than the transformation that we get with Kitty where she's just in this tube and then emerges as this different person right we get the transformation and the in-between states or the interstitial transformations really played with Margaret as you highlighted so well, because yeah, you're absolutely right. On the first page, he sort of gets one of his sort of male arms coming back, but then he shifts into Courtney Ross after that, right? So he's sort of in flux between these states. I guess I was sort of getting at as an adult character who's very sure of his identity, supposedly, yeah. whatever's going on with yeah. Nigel. Yeah, but like, I yeah, mean, I mean, <laughs> that's like kind of what's being played with, yeah, I like, but I mean, that's like maybe part of like his more horrific action. Anyway, go ahead, Matt.
2: Something really super important happens here that I yeah. think is it's subtle, but I think it's massively, important. yes, you've got the point where. Where he's fluctuating and there is very clear pain when he's fluctuating be- between Courtney and himself so when he's structuring when he's switching between forms he's horrifically in pain like you're saying but then when he becomes fully Courtney there is a calmness but the important thing is the very next thing that he says because it's not Gatecrasher that explains what happened Nigel explains what happened he says but I didn't I mean that wasn't it's Joy Boy's fault pulled the image from my dream of my boss, Courtney Ross of Frazier's Bank. Oh Lord, if she ever finds out. So this is Nigel acknowledging how Joy Boy's powers work, not gatecrasher acknowledging. So Nigel knows that he was Courtney because Joy Boy knows that he literally dreams of being Courtney. So it's not a surprise to him. Yeah. He understands, which means he's had... Which means in all these appearances earlier that we've seen of him sexually harassing Rachel, he has a very clear understanding of his own queer desire to not just have some exhibitionistic tra- transgender fetish, but he has a specific desire to specifically be Courtney and not be her power, but to be her as a sexual being. Like, he wants to embody that... And and he's aware of it. That awareness matters.
1: I so am tempted to go like deep Freudian with it and be like, okay, it's Claremont writing this and the desire to become a strong female character.
2: <laughs> is like... Maybe, but I think, I, I mean, you, one could read that, but I, I don't think you can escape that for the character. Maybe yeah. you can question it for Claremont, but for the character of Nigel, I don't think you can escape it. I, think I guess I'm just, be. I've
1: been trying to figure out why there's so much Nigel in this book for several episodes <laughs> now. And I'm just like, Claremont definitely has a vested interest interest in this character for reasons that I'm just I'm trying to I'm trying to come up with anything that we have so much of this character because as interesting as this scene is it's like I don't care
3: about Nigel as a character and I just I never will but um anyway Margaret you were you were gonna jump in yeah. I mean it's it's not surprising to see a closeted queer or trans character um, trying to shame or sort of put another character in their place for their queerness right that's yeah. you know that's something that we see happen all the time so it, it's unsurprising it's interesting of course that happens among this cast of characters right so it's not it's something the reader has knowledge of but not something that rachel has or any of the members of excalibur have knowledge of yeah yeah that's a good point
2: they still don't really know him i mean all they really know about nigel is he's this guy who irritates her from time to time he doesn't you know she doesn't have any formal introduction or relationship with him at all
1: can i ask everybody a question about the structure of this issue because as i was putting together my summary of the issue it has kind of a meandering quality and i feel like we get more and more of this like throughout the cross time caper that we have action and we have things going on but we have kind of like quiet character moments that take up a lot of the book and then sudden moments of action then back to quiet character like there's not um kind of traditional structure to the story in terms of you know like climax resolution like whatever and i was curious if that struck everybody else about this issue as well and whether you see this as sort of a hallmark of excalibur and something that it's doing more and more of when it gets into cross time caper i mean i'm arguing yes but i I was sort of interested about your thoughts about it we haven't heard from you for a while andrew thoughts
0: um no i i agree with you I, i think it's it's a trait of the cross time caper for sure that idea of a frenetic pace in which like you never get a chance to as mav said like reflect uh you just go from adventure to adventure as fast as as humanly possible. But I do think that sort of by extension, that kind of becomes a staple of Excalibur as an issue going forward, even outside the cross time caper. Um, So I I think it's both.
1: Other thoughts or impressions about kind of the narrative structure here? Like, am I wrong to think it's like a little bit of a weird structure that it's got a bit of a meandering quality?
2: Meandering and frantic and bits and pieces of narratives that will not be that will not be resolved. Not for the reason that a lot of Claremont narratives don't get resolved, which is just you know, you write something for 20 years, you you try a lot of stuff, and then sooner or later you just run out of space, right? So there's a lot of stuff that just got left hanging throughout the Claremont run of X Men and Excalibur and his Avengers stuff. But this is this book ends with um, the Queen, who we know is a Saturnine doppelganger, avatar, whatever you want to call her. It ends with that moment, and she sort of has this thing where she's like, "Oh, of course I knew. I was controlling everything." Blah blah. blah. Spoilers. She's on the first three pages of next issue, and then we'll never see her again. So it's not. Yeah. Like she's got this moment that is like,
1: it's a bad information dump at that last panel
2: right but like it's an intentional one this isn't this isn't like oh I'm going to hint that Nightcrawler is related to Mystique and not get back to it for 30 years Mm -hmm. this is not that this is him very much knowing that he is writing a plot line that he intends to do nothing with in this weird uh, the way that the cross time caper works each of these worlds they jump to because you know again this is what the cross time caper is we're going to jump from world to world to world for the next year and each of these worlds is lived in there is past history, there is future history, you're not going to get answers because that's how cross-time capers work.
1: I mean, when I think about the contrast between this series and what's going on in the main X-Men series at the time, I mean, like, do we see Claremont in particular, and we always say Claremont as though he's the only person doing this book, Claremont on Davis, but the reason we often say Claremont is just because he's such an empresario of the X-Men line, and he's writing some other books as well, so, like, do we see him, like, sort of experimenting with this greater freedom here? I mean, I think about cross-time caper and it's just like, man, I get to just go to another the world, every issue, and I don't have to deal with all of this. Like, although there is like the long form storytelling in terms of the character relationships and stuff, it's so freeing to just be like, let's do an each, a new thing every month. Like, I mean, yeah, do we sort I th- of see that coming across?
0: I think we could make up a musical comparison. Excalibur has a syncopated rhythm, right? The idea that, you know, sometimes you're waiting a month for the third act. Uh, and, and once you do that, you're sort of signaling to the audience that you are indeed breaking from convention. Uh, and that can do really cool things in terms of altering their expectations. And again, um, creating a more radical pace where you don't know how long a story is going to be uh, or when it's going to achieve its natural resolution um, or even when you're in the next story already Um, so so again i think you're really being inventive by doing this whether it was intentional or not i suspect it was because when claremont wants to do tight pacing he actually can and we see it in some pretty famous arcs um so yeah no that's something i really enjoyed uh, about Excalibur and I think it's a, a an experiment that's really just kind of coming to light in the cross time caper um, but it'll have dividends for a long time.
1: Yeah we have a lot of things in various cross time caper issues where like half of the next story will still be in this world and then we go to the next world so it's not even like they just go to a different world at the end of each issue we have like a lot of overlap and it is sort of a really it's a continuous story arc as much as it's a frenetic story arc as well. I want to come back to you Margaret in terms of we've talked a lot on the pod and we're talking now about some of the differences between Excalibur and some of the other X-Men books, like both historically and in the present moment, contemporary with when the series was published. As a first-time reader of Excalibur, did you notice sort of differences between this approach and sort of the approach in the X-Men books that you'd read sort of during the 80s leading up to this?
3: Yeah, I mean, it definitely felt a little more frenetic. It was helpful that there were these, you know, X-Men characters or characters that rec- recognized from the X-Men involved, right, um, that gave me some space to sort of figure out the other characters, uh, which I think, you know, is it's- it's very intentional that it sort of put together that way, right? Bringing them in, into Excalibur. But you know, it's once I'm in there, it's uh, it's it's interesting. But I would I'd be curious to sort of see sort of how this team gels together more and how the, how the sort of different factions are coming together because it still feels like a team that's like in process, yeah. right? and that they're figuring themselves out and sort of how they're going to sort of cohere is not really clear to me, at least in what I was reading.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Because I mean, so much of what we've been talking about in terms of the thematics of Crosstime Capers so far is, you know, this is a team who's like finding themselves by getting lost together. That this experience of
3: being dislocated is going to be the thing that brings them closer together. Yeah, what, like, what are the hierarchies in the team? Like, how do we like... <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about that's that. That's a good question. <laughs> Margaret, who do you think is the leader of Excalibur? I mean, I'm sure Captain... Britain thinks he's the leader yeah okay he
0: we've talked about he's wrong yes. he, he,
2: he, he does believe he is the leader that is true
3: I mean I feel like Nightcrawler is probably doing some like but like I feel like Kitty Pride is like people are all looking to her at the end of the end of the issue they say we say Shadowcat speaks for us all yes. you know but yeah. there's not like clear dynamics right
1: it's I feel like it's in flux and that almost gets us back to you know I've talked before about I think that Excalibur extends in certain ways from Kurt's character in some of of his previous portrayals in terms of the humor and the swashbuckling and everything. But I'm thinking more as we talk with you, Margaret, about how it extends from Kitty's character as
3: well. Definitely. And also,
1: like, we haven't really talked yet about her doppelganger here, who Mm -hmm. I love. We have not. Tell us about your thoughts on her doppelganger. She's a magic user, which is interesting.
3: Yeah, no, definitely. And she's also, she's got that spunk. Like, you know, she's going to, I like the pretty kins and she's going to try to do away uh, with basically her herself in another form although she doesn't realize it yet but she's more restrained right she's got that princess training Mm -hmm. like she's like princess kitty but sort of different and she's also a little shorter or maybe kitty's (laughs) hair maybe kitty's hair is just a little taller i'm not quite sure but you know it's interesting too and we're sort of thinking about the cross time caper structure and the fact that they leave this behind but she stays there so in some way kitty prides you know, her, um, another version of herself stays there. And so this is, you know, it makes me also think of Joanna Russ's uh, The Female Man, which years and years and years ago, I wrote a undergrad honors thesis about like feminist women-only worlds. And that's one where uh, four different versions from four different worlds sort of come together and talk about their different experiences of gender and identity. And it's interesting here to sort of see that sort of play out here as well with this sort of other character and the ways that she's sort of more restrained. Strained, but also very, is going to do what she, what she can to get what she wants.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, did we see her as a reflection of Kitty there? I mean, Travis Smith talked a couple of episodes ago
1: about the function of doppelgangers as mirrors for the characters that, well, for us, it's the primary version and they're a mirror of that character. So a good doppelganger story, we should see traces of that character in the doppelganger and that helps us learn about the primary character. Do you think that's going on with Kitty and Catherine here?
3: I mean, a huge part of Kitty arc and sort of storyline always for me is, or I always think of this as like the person that she likes who doesn't like her back, mm-hmm. right? And so she's got this scientist guy that she like, you know, but he's like besotted with someone else, right? Um, and so we have her doppelganger here is experiencing the same thing, but it's finally, it's her who is the object of affection, mm-hmm. right? So she's she's actually now the arrow being pointed at, but she doesn't want it. So it's, it's interesting sort of how it's sort of spotlight these sort of interpersonal dynamics that she herself experiences, and she's able to make it work for for this version of herself, right? So I think which gives her some satisfaction.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's sort of having this personal experience, but then part of the personal experience maybe is that interaction with Catherine as well. Other thoughts about that Kitty Catherine interaction? <laughs> I, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm I I don't love the resolution. Well, okay, maybe, and maybe it's an intentionality question, right? Because essentially there is a fairy tale ending. Where everything just sort of happens right because it's a fairy tale world and the hell with it, right? Because Catherine did something awful, but because Kitty says no, she's basically me. You can just be in love with her instead. Just propose, it'll be I, and that's what <laughs> happens. <laughs> and, and that's what happens. And it's just like oh, and then again, it's fine because Queen Mother Saturnine apparently knew what she was doing all along. I there's a tidiness to it that I didn't. Care for it doesn't kill it for me, but I'm like, I, okay, I guess uh, William gets to marry Kitty Pride of a different universe that he didn't care about until just now. For well, reasons.
1: did we want to talk about the like Diana, like sort of cameo thing and Prince William and these interconnections at all? It's going to come up in the next issue as well, but I mean, there's certainly sort of a critique of royal politics yeah. implicit here and the choice to have this sort of semi me diana cameo and the prince being named william as well right interestingly william and kate foreshadowing that later marriage
2: If it had been more than four panels worth of stuff, maybe I'd yeah. say there's criticism there, but this is rushed. And I mean, maybe it's there. Like maybe that, that is criticism, but it's the least interesting part of this issue for me.
3: Yeah. He does say, wait till you've been in the family firm a while. You'll see. So using yeah. that word, the firm, but it's, yeah. it's, it's minor.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the only thing it comes up in some of the sort of um, facial expression, sort of crossplay stuff where the Diana character sort of responds like to some of the things that the other female characters are doing. Doing, like sort of laughing at what they're doing and sort of having an affiliation with them, just sort of subtextually. But yeah, it's not something that's sort of brought to the forefront. I was wondering if we could like close by just doing a little bit of a brief spotlight of the genius of Alan Davis. We've had a couple of Alan Davis less issues at this point in the pod. And getting back to him on art these last couple of issues, I think we're all feeling like an especial appreciation for everything that he brings to this series. And I was wondering if in closing, we could bring our visual analysis skills to a particular series. Scene. And the one that I'm thinking about is the scene where the queen at the bottom of the page um, teleports Kitty and herself away. And we have the argument between the queen and Kitty going on in these long panels down the page with sort of an interplay between Megan and Rachel in the background that distracts everybody leading up to this teleportation scene. It's just such a wonderfully well done scene in terms of having the thing in the foreground and the thing in the background. Does anyone want to try to take a stab at doing like a little bit of, which works so well in an audio environment, doing a little bit of kind of a visual analysis of what's so great about this scene. We'll have it up on our website and social so we can take a look at it there.
2: I love this because this is, they say nothing but it's total characterization for Rachel, not just because of what happened, but you have to go back the page too, to where Rachel is irritated that they're like, you're not appropriate, right? Like the entire point is, she says, some monochrome of of propriety of dress must be observed in ours, even by our honored guests. And Rachel says, must mean you, Meg, my my outfit's far too rad. She knows, (laughs) and she's irritated. So they try on the clothes, and Rachel intentionally says, no, F, you i'm going punk rocker because this is who i am and i love that about her nothing ends up happening for it because the more important thing is that the queen is kidnapping kitty but it is exactly in pure visual rhetoric just by alan davis the side panels going down tell a story for rachel and megan and the fact that megan is you know who just likes trying on clothes is giddy to try on the outfit and even giddier when when um Rachel redesigns it.
1: I like the way it uses kind of repetition and difference, sort of heading down the page, Mm -hmm. right? Because the characters in the center of the panel, well, everybody's kind of in the same position, but we still have so much change going on, particularly down the right side. But anybody else want to take a stab at what makes this scene particularly special? Because I think there's more that we could say.
0: I think for me, the genius of it is um, when we talk about comics illustration, one of the ideals that you would create is an immersive experience for the reader in which the reader is moving around the space uh, in a way that is um, synchronized with the content content. Uh, of the narrative giving them this sort of spatial awareness um and exactly as you're saying like the, the foreground doesn't move it's the same it's what's happening in, in this case in the right side of the panel that is um, um dynamic uh, and you can actually see the characters turn their heads to look at it right so the idea is the reader becomes distracted which is exactly what the page is trying to express a distraction whereby you miss the sleight of hand by the queen um so you're right there in that world and i, I think that's 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 not genius illustration that, that's genius draftsmanship um yeah. So, so Davis is doing some good work there.
3: And also Lockheed. I mean, like, you know, the, the dragon's getting distracted and he's, you know, moving off the center of the page and I don't really notice it. I mean, because he sort of blends in and then he's like, oh, shit. You
0: know,
3: He's like, yeah. and they're like, wait a second, dragon.
1: And we've brought up in the past the strangeness of Lockheed apparently being attracted to human women. <laughs> which is is a dynamic that we're not sure what to do with but I mean I gotta point out we've talked about who's the leader of Excalibur and we've talked about Kurt's emotional intelligence in the past I love that he stays focused on the conversation between Kitty and the Queen and sees it going badly and is so focused on that and doesn't get distracted by what's going on on the sidelines I really that's a good character read of him especially in terms of the depth of his bond with Kitty yes yes that's like a good well they have a slightly different reaction because like Alistair's sort of like hey and like brian is a little bit like stop stop so it's like (laughs) slightly different for sure i love what you were saying andrew about the way that it brings us into the scene you know like we're immersed in the distraction and that is so dynamic in that scene i mean i just
3: i keep looking at every time you see something more one thing i will say too is that you know you can you're primed for distraction because there's so much text on the page yeah, mm-hmm. yeah right it's point. like they're using like that's not you should generally not have that much text in a superhero comic right or at least not all it's very weighty to text and it's all placed the exchange you know rather than having it sort of spread out amongst the panel it's all sort of there on that left side um weighing that side down so of course it's sort of you know visually showing us how tedious this conversation is right yeah Uh, and how open it is for people to be distracted by something else it's like you know when you're at a a party and there's these two people going at it and you're like okay who else can I mingle with right now how can I get myself out of this conversation (laughs) you know I love that yeah and just
1: bringing up kind of the juxtaposition between image and text right you know like which are we going to prefer like this image of (laughs) the ladies trying on fun outfits or are we going to read this conversation, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, any final thoughts before we I want to spotlight just a very short letter in closing, but I want to give everybody a chance for final thoughts as well.
2: I have a silly one this time. Sure. <laughs> um, it's, it, it goes into our conversation about doppelgangers, but it's not so much about Kitty and her doppelganger. I find it amazing that Brian instantly recognizes an older doppelganger of Saturnine who's put on an extra 30 pounds <laughs> over yeah. the years but change her hair to brown and he's, and he's yeah, lost, yeah. you know, <laughs> (laughs) like brian has brian dated courtney ross for years Mm -hmm. while he was not romantically but while he was literally involved with saturnine and then it takes her dyeing her hair for him to go oh i never noticed you look the same before but like give her you know she give her 20 30 extra years and like and and pounds and you're like oh wow she looks just like saturnine really (laughs) like
1: it's it's intentional though isn't it isn't it some sort of like commentary on brian not being able to sort of see what's in front of him i mean it's like almost like you know the secret identity thing of you know when you fan and read into the lois and clark relationship that she just can't see it because she's obsessed with this idea of this other person or something like that. i prefer
2: the reading of lois and clark that lois always knows yeah like and and like clark it's the tom king version of him in, in, in batman where superman's like well catwoman can't know the can't know that i'm superman in if she, just because she knows it's bruce and lois says of course she knows and he's like well you didn't know forever and, <laughs> yeah. and lois is just like oh honey come yeah. On. Yeah. <laughs> you wore glasses yeah. <laughs> i'm the best reporter in the world of course i knew
1: <laughs> i think in closing the last thing we're going to do i'm going to spotlight a very short letter from the swordstrokes letters page and <laughs> One that resonates with some of the conversations we've had on a couple of our podcasts so far when we haven't had Alan Davis penciling and resonating with our praise of his penciling in this particular issue. So this letter is from Tim Wilkinson of Cottontown, Tennessee, and these letters are in reference to Excalibur number eight. Hi, guys. We, the readers of Excalibur, have a subtle message for you. Where the heck is our Alan Davis in Excalibur number eight? The story is great as always, but without Alan's magical penciling skills, it just lost me. So we would really like to see him back in Excalibur. Excalibur number nine, okay? Because you really wouldn't want me to come down there and, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I liked that, you know, clearly the readership wasn't happy with some of these art changes as well.
2: Poor Ron limb Lim, too. Yeah.
1: yeah, I know. Really <laughs> throwing him under the bus there. <laughs> as we pointed out, he's done better work elsewhere.
3: I was not born
1: to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory
0: the fellowship was a brief beginning a fair time that cannot be forgotten and because it will not be forgotten that fair time may come again
1: Okay, I think we will end things there. Other than Margaret, we would like to give you another chance to plug some of your things that our listeners might be interested in. And if
3: you would like our listeners to find you anywhere on social or whatever, you can wreck that as well. You know, something um, I'm working on with Nicholas Miller and Jeremy Carnes, we're working on um, an edited collection on X-Men, the animated series. We're hoping that we'll be able to have it come out to coincide with the 30th anniversary of the, the series is beginning in '92, so that'd be next year. So we'll see how that goes. But either way, um, soon there will be um, a book in the world about the X-Men animated series, and I'm doing a piece in it about my sort of childhood love. Uh, for it's a, a creative piece, so I'm going to be putting some of my childhood drawings because we made our own. Uh-huh. We made our own team called the X-Women, who are like the children, in all these are sort of weird mashup ways of the X-Men, and sort of thinking about sort of it as a space for girlhood adoration and girls feeling empowered in sort of a time of you know girl power um, the Riot Girl movement um, so that's something um, I'm working on with that there's also coming out soon is the Keywords in Comic Studies book I think it's coming out this summer from NYU Press I'll have a piece in there on, on archive but it'll be a really great sort of introduction um, for people to different sorts of terms that are important within comic studies um, and also uh, for some of my other work there's a Visual AIDS, which is a really important organization um, supporting artists who are HIV positive they're doing um, a show on comics and HIV AIDS and it's uh, it was supposed to debut last summer but COVID and so it's actually going to be opening it's going to be in New York this summer but they've also commissioned um, artists to produce new comics and those comics are available online and I have a piece in the catalog for the exhibit on Don Melia who is a sort of forgotten cartoonist who edited uh, Strip Aids which was Uh, important uh, comic fundraising support for HIV AIDS in the 80s in Britain. Um, So that's a little bit of some stuff I'm doing both mainstream and not. So that I guess that's what I want to plug.
1: That's awesome, Margaret. Yeah. And we'll link all of that stuff on Twitter and in the show notes.
3: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for lending us your expertise. Next, in one week's time, we'll be on to episode 14, in which we will be discussing Excalibur number 14, Too Many Heroes, which, as the title suggests, features many zany Marvel Universe cameos, and perhaps some real-world cameos as well. We'll have a very knowledgeable guest to help us process all that zaniness. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our amazing YouTube videos available via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. Or if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a few your episode, let us know. You could reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at Gosh where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav for another splendid conversation. Thank you, Margaret, for lending us your smarts. Thank you all for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Form Music for our truly epic theme song. Play Us Out. Thank you so much, everybody. Ooh.